How are you guys doing today? My name, wow, it actually worked. Uh, my name is uh, Michael. I'm one of the leaders here at Youth. Uh, if you are new with us here, maybe for the first time, maybe back uh, in a while, uh, we just want to say thanks for coming. Thanks for hanging out with us. It might be a weird uh, kind of night for you to join us, um, but we hope hopefully it doesn't kind of stop uh, God kind of just doing whatever he wants to do in your hearts here today. And uh, we're just so gracious for how good God is, um, even in the, in the pain, even in the hurt. And uh, we started a series called uh, Life in Distortion, um, which is kind of fitting for what's kind of been happening around our community, and it's basically what happens when everything around you does not play by the same rules as you. What happens when you call yourself a Christian, you follow Jesus, but you know the people at your school don't play by the same rules. The people in your family might not even play by the same rules. How do you actually live in this kind of a life? How do you actually do this? This is what we are trying to talk about um, for the next uh, couple weeks. And uh, last week, just to, to kind of clear up, we talked about what it is to be the lights in the darkness. And you have four responsibilities, three that you must do and one that you may never be called to, but it's there. The first one is critique, that you would push back in dark places. Next is non-collaboration, that you can be there, but you're not really there. You, you participate, but you don't really participate. You go to the party, but you're different at the party. Um, and the last one is witness, is that if you actually call yourself a follower of Jesus, that there should be a joy and a light about you, about how amazing life is because Jesus is unreal. To live in his kingdom means that you are forever changed. And because you have such a disposition, because you have such an attitude of that, people look at that and go, whatever that guy's on, I want that. Whatever that person's, you know, whatever he's doing, I want, I want, I want that. And the last one that you might not ever be called to, but Jesus for sure was, is martyrdom, is to give your life for the cause. And um, that's the last thing. So today, kind of working off of that, we're also talking once again, how do you do this? How do you do this? So if you guys have a Bible, uh, open, your, uh, open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, uh, if you can, how awkward is this, as this may be, um, can you please just raise your hand if you would want one and a leader will bring you free Bible for you to take home that can be yours. So if you would like one, um, you can raise your hands and uh, they will bring one to you. All right, so grab your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 2. We are going to be reading uh, verses uh, 4 to 6, and then we are going to jump down to uh, 15 to 17. And this is what we are going to read. Verses 5 to 6, and then 15 to 17. This is what it says, or 4 to 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me pray real fast, then we can get into the message. Father God, thank you so much for the chance to be here, just to be a part of a family, a community that, that, that learns and grows and hurts together. 
that as we learn these things from your word, that we would just have a close relationship with you, that we would know you in a, in a different way, that you would enlighten us to what it is that we actually believe and change us from the inside. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen. Um, Sunday night, we meet uh, with all of our leaders, and uh, I don't know why, but this random story came to me, and it's actually quite fitting for what we're talking about today. There's this passage, right, in um, uh, verse uh, 6, or verse 5, sorry. No, verse 6. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that whole idea gave me this whole picture of, like, following somebody. Um, When I was in the sixth grade, I was... um, as most sixth graders are, I was just an idiot. And, uh, and what began to happen was one day I was in the room, and, uh, in my classroom, and on the PA system it said, uh, Michael and Shaquille, could you guys go to the office? Now, my boy Shaq was my boy, right? So this guy is like legit, he always wore the same jersey every single day to school because it was like swagtastic. And he had the biggest fro ever, and it was like amazing. We hung out every single day, but we both get called into the counselor's office. And so we all know this is all bad news, right? So we're walking there. We're kind of like brothers in arms, you know? We're going in this, and we're going to hold tight together. And so we walk into the room. There's the counselor seated, and then there's this kid named Daniel, and he's seated in the chair next to him. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a bit weirded out. I'm like, what's kind of going on? The counselor sits us down and says, hey, what uh, I want to happen here is for one hour every week, I want you guys to sit down with Daniel and just kind of talk. It's kind of weird. And the way that he explained it was Daniel was not like your regular guy. He was kind of the, the fringe students who no one really talked to, was kind of a, a bit weird, and they wanted to integrate him better into the grade. And so we got to skip out of class for one hour every single week, sit down with this guy and just talk. And every single session started the exact same way. The counselor would start the session by asking us how was our day from 1 to 10. And Daniel, because he was kind of in the position that he was, would say something like, um, you know, my, uh, uh, t- today was like a 6.5. And you know the people who give like half numbers are in a real bad spot, you know what I mean? Because they're that specific. So he goes, I'm a, you know, like I'm a, I'm a 6.5. And so now you've got to understand something about me, a dumb sixth grader uh, me. Um, I was competitive about everything, okay? If my cousin ate one sandwich, I was eating two. If he won one Yu-Gi-Oh game, I would, you know, go all night to try and beat him. Um, Super Smash Bros, don't even talk to me about it. It was a- an addiction. Um, and I was the most competitive person. So now I'm sitting in this room, and dumb me thinks that this number game is a competition. So whenever Daniel would say, um, you know, today was, a, today was a 6.5, then the counselor would look at me and say, what about you, Michael? I would say, Phew. Five. Say it was a five. And he would go, why? He goes, my mom forgot my lunch. And the next week, the same thing would happen. Daniel would have a bit of a better day. Today was a, today was a good a seven. I go, what about you? It was a six. My mom just does not care about my nutrition and forgot my lunch again. <laughs> And, uh, and this would progress week after week after week after week. It was the exact same thing. And the whole thing that I got out of this was here was this student who was setting kind of a, a, a path for me. And I kind of just, you know, whatever he did, I, I, I kind of did it the same way. And then this kind of, you know, you think that this kind of con or whatever holds up. And then one day um, I go and I get, uh, I, I talk to the counselor. And, uh, and his whole impression of me is after, you know, months of this kind of happening, he goes, man, like, Michael's like really depressed. You know? And I was like, oh, snap. This guy thinks I'm depressed. So on the next day, I hear on the announcements, uh, Michael, can you please go to the principal's office? 
And I'm like, the jig is up, folks. This is where I die. And uh, because we all know the principal's office is only for murderers. So I go to the principal's office, I go into the room, and the scariest sight I've ever seen in my entire life is in that room. It's the principal sitting with my mother, okay? And uh, if you guys have never, I talk to my mom a lot. If I've never described my mom to you, she is four foot 11 of vicious, okay? She is a jalapeno come to life. And, uh, and so I get into that room, and my thought is immediate fear, right? Um, and I can neither confirm nor deny that after that conversation, I went home, she beat me half, almost to death, uh, but neither confirm nor deny. So this whole situation led me to think about this whole thing. Okay, here was this kid and he, he did something in which I imitated and it led me to go into the wrong way of things. So if that's true, if, if me following this person doing this thing led me to this position, what is also true is probably the opposite. If I follow someone who is worth following, the results of that following will be me going in a better place rather than the worse. Does that make sense? Pretty clear. Here John is coming to us and he's saying that exact thing. He's saying, verse six, whoever says he abides in him, him being Jesus, ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So if you believe in Jesus, there's something about what he did that you must also imitate. There's something about following him that needs to be important. Now, what we've done is we've hijacked this word following, right? We follow people on Instagram. We follow people on Twitter. We can choose what to intake and what to not. If I'm following someone on Instagram and I'm going through and I'm like, oh man, not, not the right filter. And like, I sometimes I wish there was like a dislike button, whatever. So I go through and I'm like, no, I'm not going to care about that. And then all of a sudden one catches my attention. I'm like, man, this is a great photo. Move on, move on. Oh, wow, this is a great photo. Move on and move on. And, and there's countless of all of these images that I've skipped all in between. And what that image of following is, is I get to pick and choose what I want to take in and what I want to leave away. That's the following that we're kind of used to, right? But this is a different kind of follow. This is kind of following saying, no, no, you cannot pick and choose the aspects that you want. You even have to take the things that you don't want. This is why following Jesus is such a hard thing. Uh, let's picture this, okay? Uh, I'm married, right? I got my wife. She is like, come on, this is a great marriage. We're having a great time. We're like, hey, we own a chinchilla. So we are having a great time. And, uh, and so one of the things about my wife is she's awesome, right? She's gracious, she's loving, she's caring, she's passionate about stuff that she does. She's also kind of crazy, but that's okay. So um, I married her for a certain purpose. And the purpose was because her love is absolutely unbelievable. It is insane if you've ever met her. It is absolutely crazy, right? So this girl is just, come on, right? It's awesome. This is a good, good setup for me, whatever. But let's take this example. God comes to me and says, hey, I will give you the option to reprogram your wife to do whatever it is that you want her to do. Now, I would look to God and say, God, this is a trick, okay? This is gonna bite me in the butt somehow. But imagine that was the case, right? Me and my wife sometimes you know, we disagree on things. She has one opinion of how this should go. I have one opinion of how this should go. And we get into, you know, um, loving talks. And so we have that kind of thing go on. And so all of a sudden, if God comes to me with a proposal saying, hey, you can reprogram your wife to do whatever you want, say I took him up on it. Say I got her to do whatever I, it is that I wanted her to do. She responds exactly the way that I want her to respond. She acts in the morning the way that I want her to act in the morning, right? I reprogram her to everything that I want her to do. If I took that 
I picked and I chose exactly what I wanted for her. The whole reason why we're married is then lost. The whole reason why I'm with her is completely lost. The whole reason why God chose her to be in my life is completely lost. Because if I pick and choose what I want her to be, then all she becomes is an extension of myself. Me being with her is not because of our similarities. It's because of our differences. It's the fact that she loves people to an extent that I could never possibly imagine. And when I look at that, I go, man, I need to do better in that. It's the fact that she's so passionate that she kicked me out of my own house to have a sleepover with a bunch of other girls. And I go, man, I need to have a sleepover in my house with the dudes. Come on, somebody. All right, that's the, the front row. You're invited. Um, and all of a sudden, the differences are the very things that change. And that's the very thing that we do with Jesus. We look at this and we begin to pick and choose the aspects of him that we want to follow and we don't. And what we begin to do is we make buffet Jesus, where all we do is we make him just an image of ourself. And if you make him just an image of yourself, you are getting nothing as to what he is actually calling you to be. So if he says, if John says, you are to walk as Jesus walked, that means you do not get to choose where or when. It's wherever he goes, you go. Does that make sense? So now the part for us that's important is we have to figure out, okay, where is it that he actually went? Where are the places that Jesus actually went? Uh, Hebrews is a very, very important place for this. Hebrews 13, 7 to 13. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Hebrews 13, 7 to 13. Um, this is what it says, and I'm going to read it out loud. Hebrews 13, 7 to 13. It says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which we have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into... The holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice are sin for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear this reproach he endured. This whole thing is talking about how these really crappy things happen outside of the camp or outside of the gates. And then it goes and says, Jesus is the very one who went outside of the gates. Okay, so let's tie some things together. John is saying we need to follow where he goes. And then Hebrews is telling us that Jesus went outside of the gate, which then probably connects to go, man, we must also follow him outside of the gates. So then the question has to be, do we really want to follow? There's a guy by the name of Kyle Eidelman who writes this book. Uh, he, he has this to say, and I think it's important for us to remember. He says this, Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer is not an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. 
And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. So following Jesus is going where he went, not just cheering Jesus on going, whoo, yeah. That's not the call for you. The call is for you to go where he went. And if Hebrews says that Jesus went outside of the gate, we have to understand what was there. We have to go to Leviticus and Leviticus tells us that outside of the gates, all of the sacrifices, so all of these dead animals, imagine the smell, imagine the look, are all put outside of the gates. Leviticus 13, 45, 46, that all the people who had skin diseases in life were put outside of the gate. The last group of individuals who were put outside of the gate, Leviticus 23, 13 to 14, were all of the criminals. They were put outside the gate. So it's interesting that Jesus chooses to go to a place where not only is it disgusting, but it's dirty and it's dangerous. Not only is it dirty, but it's disgusting and it's dangerous, right? This whole series is called what? Life in Distortion. What are you to do amongst people around you who have no idea about the rules that you play by? For Jesus, it was to go directly to them. You know, those people with skin disease at this time, they were treated as absolute exiles. No one was ever to go to them. A criminal? Why would you ever talk to a criminal? This makes zero sense whatsoever. In everyone's minds, the right thing to do is leave them alone, leave them be, have no one go to them. That makes zero sense. But those are exactly the people who he went to. The exact people that Jesus went to were the ones that nobody cared about. So what's the verse? That you are to walk the way that he walked. He walked towards the poor. He walked towards the broken. He walked to those who feel bitterly alone. So what are you to do? And the call to walk as Jesus walked in a place that is so broken is to do exactly what he did. All of the Christians who began this whole thing. You want, you want to know why people paid so much attention? In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. And one of the things that historians keep on talking about that event is when the Romans came in and destroyed everything, every other people group ran out of the city, but every single Christian ran in. Do you know how crazy that is? Death, destruction, hurt, pain, loss is facing you as you go ahead, but every follower of Jesus did the exact opposite of what everyone else did. When they left the city because they didn't want those things, they ran in because they said, this is what we're called to, because this is what he walked into. When there's hurt, when there's danger, when there's pain, what did Jesus do? He walked into that situation. He did not walk away. He walked into that situation. He did not walk away.
Verse 15 is interesting in 1 John because then it skips and it changes and it says if you, you have to walk the way that he walks. And then he moves into this other place where he begins this, this, this almost this language of do not love the world. And this is what it says, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it says, do not love the world. Now, what we need to not get wrong is it does not say, do not love the people in the world. Okay, these are very different things. Last week, we talked about this whole idea of an alternate way of living, which is the rule and reign of Jesus. And the modern way of living is what we called here the empire. It's the different way of living your life. It's the distorted way of reality. So people who live in that reality need to be cared for and loved. The church has a really bad way of thinking of people who don't follow Jesus. And it's kind of weird. Like for some reason, Christians kind of feel like non-Christians are like out there trying to like, you know, eat babies and like punt every kid that they see. And it's like, what are we talking? No, they're regular, normal, loving people. Man, one of the most important people in my life was my best friend's dad growing up showed me everything about what it was to work hard, to care and, 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 and raise his family well. Was he a follower of Jesus? No. But in order to love the people who are in that place, we also have to take responsibility. We have to communicate to them. We actually have to talk to those kinds of people. Some of us are caught in a little Christian bubble. We go to Christian school, we have a Christian family, we only have Christian friends, we only take Christian buses. I don't know how you do that, but that's the only thing we do. And our problem is we don't even have any non-Christian friends. That should probably push us in one way. The other side of us are only surrounded by non-Christians. We feel like we're the only Christian in our family, in our friends, maybe even in our workplaces if we have those, and we feel absolutely alone. What do you do in those situations? How do you start those conversations? How do you be the light in that kind of darkness? The first way that we shouldn't do that is by talking like Christians. We have a really weird way of, of talking about things. Like we even have a prayer language, you know? Like no one talks to regular people like Christians talk to other Christians. You know what I mean? When you're sitting in a prayer meeting and you're around in a circle and one guy goes, man, I just wanna pray for my health and I, God, just, just do a tremendous work. And the next person goes and it's like, God, I really just want to echo that prayer. Uh, I want to echo that he is healed. The next guy goes and goes, God, I just really want to echo that echo. And, uh, and, and, and Dada, I just want you to do tremendous work. And then all of a sudden we go to a non-Christian and they start asking us questions about what Christianity is even like. And we go, uh, God's, your, God's your daddy. God's, God's your father. And then all of a sudden, every non-Christian looks at you going like, no, ain't no invisible man my daddy. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't even make, that doesn't even make sense. So the first thing is, do not love the world does not equal do not love the people in the world. But to love the people in the world, you have to talk in a way that they can understand. Not to talk in this fake way that we all kind of spit around, which if we're going to be honest, we don't actually care about, but we only use because we want to sound spiritual. <laughs> Point in case. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Izzy, ah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, 
So this thing does talk about something that's super, super important. Okay, let's read this verse again, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When you think about yourself, and this is the thing that you're constantly taught, right? This empire mindset is constantly telling you, you are what you think. Okay, the most important thing about you as a 15, 16, 17 year old is that what you think. You are, you think, therefore I am, right? I think, therefore I am. This is the big kind of motto of that whole idea. Whatever you think is your identity, okay? So I think in this kind of a way, so this is who I am, right? You are nothing but a talking stick with a brain on top. That is the idea that they have and that you might have. My ideas are what makes me who I am. But the thing about Jesus is that he pushes in a very different way. You are not what you think, but what Jesus wants to push onto you is you are what you love, okay? You are not what you think, you are what you love. And the history has gone from this place of you are what you love to you are what you think. So now today we're in this place where, well, if it cannot be proven, then I will not trust it. If it does not have all of the evidence, we will not believe in it. That is a constant way of thinking that you are what you think, not what you love. But what this is saying is you are what you love. There's this famous guy, his name is Augustine. He has this quote, he has this very thing to say, and it's this, you have made us, he's talking about God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. He's saying, man, my heart, the very thing that's so symbolic of love, my heart, all of my love is restless until I am in rest with you. But you know what that means? That means if my heart is not at rest until it finds its rest in him, that means we will constantly be restless if we never go to him. That if we, we say we're Christians, man, I love Jesus, I love everything about him, a hard thing hits us and we don't run his way, we go into a million other, different other options, then what that is saying to you is that you will constantly be restless until you find the thing that puts you to rest. Does that make sense? It's so important for us to realize you are what you love. So when you hurt, what do you run to? Where do you go? What do you actually love? It's hard for us to hear things like this because everything around us is constantly pitching to us a different message, right? You are what you think. The other day, me and my wife take a little trip to Seattle. Um, we're going down, we're down in the States, whatever, and I have a coffee cup and I'm just drinking the coffee cup. And for some reason, I don't know why, I looked at the bottom of the coffee cup and the bottom of the coffee cup had John 3.16 printed on the coffee cup. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this coffee cup is trying to preach to me right now. This is the weirdest thing in the world. And then right after that, we go to the mall. When I go to the mall, I'm walking through and all of a sudden there's these signs and all of these signs are these girls in their lingerie and you know, hey, we're by the things or whatever. And so we're walking through and we're like, no, I'm not buying no things. And so we go back to the place that we're staying in the hotel. And all of a sudden this advertising comes on for like hot sauce or something so unrelated. And this girl's walking around in her bikini, kind of not wearing a whole lot of clothes. And it's like, hey, if you want things spicy, buy the hot sauce. Cause she's obviously spicy. Oh, 
Yeah, cool, whatever. So that begins to be the way that it's doing things. And what you begin to realize is that everything around you, everything around you is constantly trying to say, this is how you should live your life. And we go, oh, that's so stupid. Why? Because the only message I am seeing with those things is show less clothing, show more skin, get more attention. Wear less clothing, show more skin, get more attention. And then I, as a guy who has to run a youth ministry, can barely follow a lot of people on Instagram. Because we're sitting there and the same thought comes to our mind. Man, I'm not having a very good day. I think something that might cheer me up is some affirmation. Well, how can I get some affirmation? Okay, well, let's post this picture. Me wearing hardly anything. This isn't just for the girls, also for the guys. So I can see how many likes I get. And my life is happy because of a button. You see how twisted that is, right? That you are gonna find your heart's rest and how many times people press a button. Makes no sense. And then we actually begin to see how twisted things really are. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Sometimes when we live life and, and things happen kind of all around us, the worst problem about living in the world is that some of the stuff that the world does is actually pretty fun. And that's what gets to us. Man, we know we shouldn't do this thing and yet we do it anyways, but it's actually so much fun. That's the thing that hooks us. I know I don't want to be drinking, but man, it's, I always have a good time when I do. And I, I know I shouldn't be you know, fooling around with this girl or for this guy, but it's... It's fun. How do you deal with that? How do you get to that kind of a place? Like the amount of people that I have to talk to about their makeout buddies is like ridiculous to me. What do you do in those kinds of situations? When you feel like you're giving yourself to a place where, man, you don't even feel it anymore. You are so deep that things about God don't even hit you. What does that mean? There's a guy by the name of John Piper. He says this. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. You have nibbled so long at the table of the world, at every message it has sent you, for every way of life it has told you to live. You have, you have just eaten that up so much that when God shows up and says, listen, I'm actually the satisfaction, I'm actually the rest that you have always been longing and wondering for, there is no room for him. It's this non-collaboration. 
It's being in the world without being in the world. It's loving people even though you're not going to participate in some of the things that they're doing. Not because those people are evil or cruel or horrible. It's because you have a completely different way of being human. And that completely different way of being human is only found in Jesus, the one who went where nobody else wanted to go so that we could live a life that we were never, ever able to live on our own. I want to end off with this. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a famous verse, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. If I was an advertiser, I would focus all of my advertising on those three things. Because when you think about, and every single one of us is going to have one, so let's not just try and fool around and say we don't. Whatever your sin problem is, whatever is locked in the back of your closet, whatever that thing is, is going to fall under these three categories. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe we've never thought about that as kind of a weird thing, that sometimes we just eat to eat for no reason other than just to eat. But biblically, that's kind of saying, that's not the way to do it. You're supposed to eat because you, you need to eat, not because you just want to eat all the time. For some of us, maybe it's, it's more sexually oriented. It's the girl at the party. It's the guy at the party. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the carnal desires, the flesh. Maybe for some of us, it's the desire of the eyes. It's the way that, man, when I, when I walk up to you, the very first thing I notice about you in my conversation is the way that you look. It's the shoes that you wear. It's the shirt that you're wearing. It's the pants that you have on. So if someone walks up to me and the first thing I say about them is what they are wearing, what does that tell you about what I think is important? Desires of the eyes. And then there's the pride of life. It's what some of us might be grasping onto. And it's this whole idea of, I want to be the man. I want to be that independent woman or whatever it is. And I want to be the one with the money. I want to be the one with the house. I want to be the big shot that people look up to and say, you're someone. It's status. It's the pride of life. Now, when 1 John tells us those three things, and he's previously said, you need to walk in the way that he walked. You need to go exactly where Jesus went. There's this very interesting story about Jesus and his nemesis, right? Satan. Satan walks up to Jesus after he has fasted for 40 days, and he, and he, and he gets three temptations to him. The very first thing he says to Jesus is, listen, hey, you should go over and make those rocks into bread, Jesus looks at him and he retorts back with scripture. Man does not eat by bread alone, but on the word of God. What's, what's Satan doing with Jesus right there? It's a desire of the flesh. It's hunger. 
And then Satan goes, okay, okay, that one didn't work. That one didn't work. Okay, now how about this? He takes him to the top of a mountain. He shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, listen, if you just bow down to me, I will give all of these to you. Once again, Jesus responds with scripture. Deny Satan a second time. What's that? The desire of the eyes. The very last thing, they go to the top of this temple and Satan says to Jesus, I want you to jump off. Hit the ground. Show everyone that you're going to be okay. Think about the way that they're going to look at you. Jesus, once again, responds with scripture, rejects Satan, goes, no, that's, that's not what I'm doing. Be gone and kicks him away. What's that? The pride of life. So if you are someone to walk in the way that he walked, he has already given you the way to walk through all three of those things. But the beauty of our position is not so much that you have to do it alone, is that you follow somebody who has already done it. We need to love, we need to care, we need to be a different kind of person for the people who are around us. There's something different about what we believe in. There's something different about Jesus that's different from any other thing that there is in life, any other worldview, and every other thought process. There is something different about Jesus. There's something completely different about Jesus. What is it? Uh, let's see it this way. 90% of Muslims live in one part of the world, the Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia. Right? 80% of Buddhists live in Eastern Asia. 90% of Hindus live in India. All of these people live in all of these very primary places. And then you look at Christianity. 25% of all Christians live in Europe. 25% of people live in Central or South America. 22% of Christians live in Africa, 15% of Christians live in Asia and is growing significantly, and 12 to 15% of all Christians live in North America. What's with that? 90% of Muslims are in one place, 80% of Buddhists are in one place, 90% of Hindus are in one place, you look at Christianity and it's everywhere. Why? because it knows how to live a life in distortion. Let me give you this example. I went to Haiti in November. This is the last thing, I swear. I was in Haiti in November and uh, the Haitians are legit, all right? Um, they talk about this thing and, and, and they're so funny, like the amount of just, anyways, they're awesome. They're the most joyous people in the world. They're sweet, they're cool. They have this thing where they, they call it No Pants Fridays, where nobody just wears pants on Fridays. I think we should adopt it, it's kind of cool. Anyways, so, we're there, it's awesome, it's, a, it's, it's an awesome time, Haiti's legit, whatever. They always have this joke though in Haiti. They say 80% um, Catholic, 100% voodoo. Right, that's their, that's their logic. 80% Catholic, 100% voodoo. Which means even people's views of Christianity is infused with this whole idea of a spiritual life. Good spirits, bad spirits, and their whole main track has been distorted by this other kind of wave. So everybody in Haiti believes in spiritual things, okay? Good spirits, bad spirits, that how, that's how the core of what it is to be Haitian. Now imagine, okay, secular society that we live in. Imagine a Haitian goes to Harvard. Okay, he goes to Harvard and we believe, you know, when we live in the modern culture, when we live in this secular world without God, man, things are so much better. The Haitian goes to Harvard. 
The Haitian's main question is, what do I do with bad spirits? Goes to the Harvard class, goes and asks the professor and says, uh, sir, how do I handle bad spirits? And the professor's gonna look at the Haitian and go, man, I have the perfect solution for you. I know how to solve this. The guy goes, man, okay, well, what, what do I do? From the secular perspective, he's gonna say, man, the beauty of your problem is that it isn't even a problem. There is no such thing as a spiritual. There are no good spirits. There is no bad spirits. You have no problem to deal with. Now, what did that worldview just do to that person? It completely flattened and took away what it was to be Haitian for them. It took away their very core. But Christianity does something different. Jesus does something different. He goes to that individual in that situation who believes that thing and goes to them and says, yes, there are good spirits. There are bad spirits, but it's not up to you to defeat them. I already have. And when secular society wants to go to that Haitian, what they're saying is, hey, we don't want to make you a renewed Haitian. We want, you to, we want to make you a remade European. We're not trying to keep you what you are. We're trying to change you completely. And now you just notice what Jesus does. He goes into a situation and looks at your specific need and says to you, listen, let me be the solution to your issue. Not, let's take away your problem completely. Let me solve the puzzle. Let me solve the problem. And that's what he did on the cross. That's who he was. We ought to walk where he walked. Where did he walk? He walked to death for every single one of us because he loved us so much. That when he could have walked away, he didn't. He walked straight towards love every single time for every single one of us. That's an unbelievable thing for us to understand. Christ would do that for you and I. He did not love the world. He did not love the mentality, but he sure loved the people in it. How do you live a life in distortion? You live a life that loves people regardless of what they think. And you love them based off of your love, Jesus Christ himself. That our hearts find rest in him and nothing else. And that has to be the way that we live life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today that as we just get to sit in what you're telling us about, God, that we are just so gracious, that we just fall under, under what you are telling us to do, and we are just humbled, and we look at our lives, and we go, man, what else can I do? I kind of love the people around me. How can I just cherish? How can I just grow better in community? How do I do this non-collaboration thing? How do I show people the love of Jesus and just witness how great it is to live in the kingdom? God, that you would just open our eyes today that you would just make us greater to a crazy amount because of you. You would allow us to run to the people who nobody would think to run to, that when everybody else is running away, we run in, and that we be those kinds of individuals. That when we see hurting people, our hearts break. Everything about us wants to just be saddened for them. We're called to bear one another's burdens. And that actually, I hope, begins to be the call for us. That there are tons of message in the world about how to, how to live our life. But God, you are the only one who allowed us to truly live for what it is to be human. So Father, we thank you.